0: The Guardian.
1: Guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.
2: I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk... The point about a quasi-judicial role is not that you... Inquire a responsibility for a quasi-judicial decision with your um, brain wiped clean. It's the
3: biggest week of the Leveson Inquiry yet. Yes, I know we've said that before, but this week it really is the biggest week, as Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt took to the stand, along with Tony Blair, Michael Gove, Vince Cable, Ken Clark, Theresa May, yep, yeah, well, yep, yeah, now you believe me, and...
4: Hello, I'm Alan Partridge, and I'd like to tell you about a very special place... Whether you know it as East Anglia, the Plump Peninsula, home of the Broads, although that sounds like a refuge for fallen prostitutes, Albion's Hindquarters, or quite simply, the Wales of the East.
3: We talk BAFTAs, The Apprentice and Alan Partridge with The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Vicky will be joining me later, but we begin the show with the Guardian's head of media and tech, Dan Saber and Media Guardian reporter, Lisa O'Carroll. Yep, we're starting off with the Jeremy, sorry, the Leveson inquiry. 37 days after the Culture Secretary first faced calls for him to go over his role in News Corp's aborted B B bid, this you'll remember was the publication of those 163 pages of emails from News Corp lobbyist Fred Michel, Hunt finally had his day at the Royal Courts of Justice. Dan, it feels as if Jeremy Hunt's been on a political life support machine for some time now, but is his position
1: more secure since uh, his appearance before Leveson, or less, do you think? About the same, I would say. I think, look, I mean, Jeremy had to endure sort of six hours of of, of testimony. He showed great stamina, sort of like, you know, St. Sebastian, I think lots of arrows in him, but still standing. Uh, 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 I mean, he was able, I think, to say just about that... um, uh, that he said well he tried to run the argument that he was you know he was sympathetic to the Murdoch bid but not supportive uh that he had he liked Adam Smith a lot and had some idea of what he was doing but not everything and that all in all uh you know he did his level best because he didn't give News Corp absolutely everything it, he, it wanted for example he wanted the spin-off of Sky News and so on and it was an argument and it sort of held together in its way and David Cameron seemed to think it was good enough and said he had sort of passed with flying colors and said there were no breach the ministry code, But, you know, what we also saw for, for, for Hunt was just again, you know, more incremental revelations. And in particular, this time on his evidence day on Thursday, those text messages between him and James Murdoch and between him and George Osborne. Text messages of James Murdoch on the sort of uh, uh, on the 21st of, uh, of December. This is just before on the day that Hunt gets the bid, and he sort of you know, he's texting James Murdoch saying him, congrats on getting European Union approval. And again on March the 3rd, in the period while he is adjudicating the bid, and James Murdoch sort of saying, you know, great work, well done in terms. You know, and Jeremy sort of sort of saying You know, thank you. I think we've got the the right answer. This well, sort of it, intimate to, dialogue going on between the two men.
3: You mentioned that text message there from uh, from Hunt to uh, James Murdoch. Let's hear what Robert J. Lee, counsel to the inquiry, had to say about that um, to Hunt.
5: You were aware that DG in Brussels had, uh, as it were, allowed the competition aspect of the bid to to go through because you send a text message to Mr. Murdoch great and congrats on Brussels, just Ofcom to go? Yes. I mean, Would you agree, uh, Mr Hunt, that that is conveying a, a somewhat positive view on where the process had reached? Yes. But to put it bluntly, uh, Mr Hunt, Dr Cable had just lost the role through the appearance of bias in One Direction... Um, doesn't it um, emerge from a fair reading of this text that you shouldn't have acquired the role for the equal and opposite reason? Um, No, Um, because,
2: as I understand it, um, the point about a quasi-judicial role is not that you acquire a responsibility for a quasi-judicial decision with your um, brain wiped clean. Um, The point about a quasi-judicial role is that you set aside any views that you have and you decide objectively on the basis of, in this case, uh, media plurality and, and not on the policy considerations that have been my preoccupation to that point.
3: Jeremy Hunt there at the inquiry. So, Dan, yes, uh, very much uh, under the under the spotlight here was the, the, the level of contact that um, Jeremy Hunt had with Murdoch, uh, uh, when and where, and, and whether it was appropriate.
1: Yeah, and I think the key point is, does the Minister for Murdoch tag still stick? And I think, you know, the 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 intimacy of the relationship suggests it does. What I also suggests it does, he set up Adam Smith to act as a kind of communications channel. OK, he says he didn't expect Smith to be bombarded by the new bad man, Fred Michelle, but... but uh, uh, you know, nevertheless, he set him up as a sort of line of contact. And it came out, for example, uh, phone phone hacking. Well, we knew that Jeremy Hunt was sort of pretty margin interested in phone hacking until right up at the last moment after Millie Dowler. And, in fact, he said when the News of the World closed. Uh, uh, but he did also say that he had at least asked some legal advice in, in April whether he could consider it as a result of the bid. And that was when News Corp announced a big settlement fund, I think £20 million, said it, actually there was a lot more phone hacking going on at the News of the World than have been the first thought. And Jeremy Hunt, I think, looked at the legal advice and pretty much dismissed it. So it kind of depends how you sort of judge the evidence. If you judge it on how he performed, he did fine. If you judge it on what he did, his actual actions during the period, and what we learn about the sort of intimacy of this back-channel relationship, I think he's still, you know, still in a bind.
3: When those emails were first published, uh, a lot of focus was on um, Adam Smith's role and his um, his relationship, uh, inappropriate contact. Uh, it was said that he had with uh, News Corp um, lobbyist Fred Michelle. Let's just listen to what um, Hunt had to say about
2: that. Sometimes special advisors have a role which is about um, speaking for their boss, um, and um, but in this situation, uh, Mr. Smith's role was a different one. He was he was a point of contact in a, a very complex process, and there too. Uh, advise uh, News Corp um, about questions they had about the process and
5: I think also to reassure them that the process was fair. Hmm. So in terms of the discharge of the function which had been allocated to him, uh, your evidence is he would work that out from what he heard at meetings, is that correct? Yes.
3: So, Lisa, there was a very definite effort by Jeremy Hunt to put sort of clear blue water between what he was doing and and the activities uh, and what special Advisor Adam Smith was doing.
0: Um, Yeah, there was. But just picking up on something that um, Dan said earlier about the text between himself and Murdoch, one of the things I thought was very interesting was I think there was that we still there's a gap in our knowledge um, about the exact contact um i'm not accusing him of lying under oath or anything but i thought it was very interesting that he made this call to murdoch on the 15th of november um defying legal advice to um get involved in the in the process of um that vince cable was um in charge of um and then we rolled forward five weeks later on the 21st and the first text is sorry um um, I missed your call. This is to, to James. It was very, very informal. There was no, um, can we can we speak? It was, it, it was as if there was some other contact between the fifteenth and the twenty-first, and I thought that was a bit suspicious. Um, on the difference between him, him and Vince Cable, um, I don't think he acquitted himself on that at all. He was, he was you know the polar opposite of Vince Cable Vince Cable as Michael White said today in his sketch was the boo leader Um, he was a cheerleader for Murdoch and as he said he was sympathetic rather than supportive but I think that's just playing with words it's splitting hairs Well,
3: You mentioned the the phone call there between um, Hunt and Murdoch uh, Dan, this was when uh, he was advised, given legal advice, that a, a meeting with James Murdoch uh, was not appropriate, uh, and then the two men had a, a, a mobile phone conversation after that. Let's, ju- let's just hear what Hunt had to say about that.
5: If a meeting is inappropriate, as uh, this might tend to suggest, what, why is a telephone call appropriate? Well, I didn't see the telephone call as a replacement for the meeting.
2: I, I, my interpretation of the advice was that um, I should not involve myself in a judicial process that's being run by another Secretary of State and that that was the purpose of the meeting that was requested by Newscore and that's why that wasn't appropriate But what was discussed on the phone then, Mr Stand? I just heard Mr Murdoch out um, and uh, basically heard what he had to say about
5: um, uh, you know, what was on his mind at, the moment, at that time yeah. But what you heard on the phone is exactly the same thing as you would have heard had there been a face-to-face meeting, isn't that right? Um, well, it depends.
3: And Dan, this actually took place before Jeremy Hunt uh, had responsibility for the, the quasi-judicial uh, overseeing of the, uh, the, the the news
4: court bit. That's
1: right. That's when Vince Cable was in charge of the process, as he was until until December the 21st and what's very clear, I mean this has been now clear for some days, came out <clears throat> back end of last week in the sort of context of the Adam Smith, Fred Michelle evidence but has been sort of built, amplified if you like, was Jeremy Hunt he was absolutely desperate to find a locus to, to intervene to try and stick his oar in into a decision that was legally Vince's and Vince's alone and also legally quasi-judicial about which we heard a lot but it's a political decision that he was supposed to take. Uh, and he's told, you know, and he's clearly told he can't talk. The secretary, uh, the, the ca- his permanent secretary, I'm sorry, Jonathan Stevens, uh, uh, says he can't meet James Murdoch, so he just picks up the phone and rings him. And if you listen to what he says, and I sort of study the transcript on this, uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt didn't seem to, doesn't seem to have sought permission for this phone call. He just seems to have got on with it anyway because he said he'd sort of got a kind of a standing... Permission, if you like, from his officials to have informal contact with stakeholders as he saw fit. But there are stakeholders and there are stakeholders, and this is an important sort of legal process, around, you know, around this bid. What we also saw, I think, is is the complete difference to the approach Vince Cable took uh, uh, to the one Jeremy Hunt took, and and you know Vince Cable sort of seemed to treat this as a kind of sort of solemn, magisterial sort of binding undertaking, and wouldn't meet or would barely interact with with News Corp to, to James Murdoch's incredible frustration and a special advisor sort of kind of humoured Fred Michelle a tiny bit but essentially didn't really want to agree to meetings or anything so I was very you know Vince just was keeping well out of his way like a, like a hermit if you like you know Jeremy was sort of eager to maintain a dialogue both formally and informally with News Corp and James Murdoch throughout the process both when uh, both when Vince was in the man in the hot seat, and then when he took over after on the back of him when Vince was sort of ejected from the job. and
3: one question uh, Lisa, perhaps frustratingly not put to Vince Cable, who appeared at the inquiry the day before, was what he thought of the uh, his role yes, being yes, given yes. to Jeremy Hunt.
0: Um, yeah, that was disappointing. Jay asked him one one question. he said he felt angry with himself, but he understood that it was necessary, and Jay didn't ask him. What he thought of the special advisor. And it looked as if Jay was cleverly setting up um, Jeremy Hunt the next day by um, teasing out of Vince Cable his relationship with his spe- special advisor and what sort of authority he had to speak to any side involved or any stakeholder involved in the process. And it was, you know, Cable made it clear that he had a completely different approach, as Dan said. His special advisor would not have spoken to anybody on the matter. Um, those were the rules. So it was disappointing that he didn't follow that up and ask him. And Cable what he also thought said
3: there'd Cable said that they were going to be. Uh, he'd, he'd heard um, references to, to veiled threats that uh, that the Lib Dems would be done over uh, by the news international papers. Yeah, if, which if weren't didn't
0: substantiated the... at all. So,
3: and do you think Jake had pressed him further on that? Well, uh, he
0: did. He did, but he didn't get the answer, did he? He 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 it was. He had heard it from somebody who told him in confidence and um, he couldn't reveal who that was, but it was second-hand information. It sort of posed
3: more questions than it answered, really.
1: I think that's right, it was, again, I mean, if you were gonna criticize Vince Cable, I think his evidence is sort of 95% disciplined and then then sort of, uh, and a little dull, and then on this sort of 5%, on this veiled threats allegation, rather loose, actually. I mean, okay, I think Vince is trying to say in a perception that 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 News Corp were kind of after his party if he, they didn't make decision his way, and I suppose that was something worth putting in evidence. But but as he couldn't back it up, it did raise more questions than it than, than it answered. And it's a heavy thing to say for a, you know a business secretary to be critical of any company you know any company like that without having a lot of backup. So uh, I'm not sure that was his sort of that was his finest moment uh, in that context
0: yeah I was just going to um uh, just raise another point about the process. What was quite interesting um was the informality as Dan said about process in um jeremy hunt's um regime um a he conceded that he should have min- he in future would um uh, now minute um conversations with the likes of you know stakeholders involved in critical bids for major broadcasting operations um um but there was one thing that they didn't um question on him as much as they could which is why he didn't use departmental email and um, it, it emerged from the inquiry that he was using a Gmail account to um, communicate with Adam Smith so it's official government business um, only a few months ago the Department of Education were wrapped in March by the um, Information Commission for using I think it was Michael Gove was using his wife's that's um, right. email uh, under the name Mrs Blunt um, and the, the government are now challenging the ICO so that's all been thrown into the long grass but it does, it does raise the question as it did um, of the Department of Education are ministers using private Gmail or Yahoo accounts to prevent um, journalists getting information through the Free- Freedom of Information Act.
3: That might be one that, 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 that rolls on in the future. Um, and Dan, as far as Hunt was concerned, there's only one person to blame for the whole thing. I think that was Fred Michelle. He sort of uh, said he was pushy, uh, relentless, bombarded Adam Smith with, e- with emails and al- almost sort of, I don't know, almost pretty much explicitly blamed Michelle for... Um, for, for putting Smith into a corner and saying, well, he, you know, he ended up doing stuff that he shouldn't have done, but really that was Fred Michelle's fault because uh, you know, the, the, the level of contact was so relentless.
1: It was very hard to work out what it was that Adam Smith had done wrong, really. If you listen to Jeremy Hunt's evidence, Hunt really liked Adam Smith. He said he was very effective and capable, a man of integrity, I think he sort of said, or, uh, a, a hard-working special advisor. I and mean, actually Smith got great appraisals too. So uh, uh, he then uh, had to say that well, if, then he had to say, well, if Smith did anything wrong, or the reason he resigned, going back to uh, Hunt's ministerial statement, was because the volume and tone of contacts, which sounds like everything, volume and tone, what else is there? Volume and tone of his contact with Fred Michel and News Corp. But, but then when he gave evidence, he sort of started saying, well, Fred Michel bombarded him at three in the morning and, and sort of Saturday mornings and Sundays and so on. And and Michel was a hyperactive lobbyist. It was his job, it's kind of the News Corp way, but he was constantly sort of trying to get information of from Smith and, and I mean Hunt was saying that he thought the information that came across was sort of pretty incremental you know didn't 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 add a vast amount but I guess was sort of process updates uh, uh, and so finally he was sort of forced to say because uh, uh, he clearly didn't really want Smith to resign I mean sort of you know I think he sort of patted him on the back and they went out for a drink when all the Michelle emails broke originally and according to Smith Hunt said it won't come to that when Smith offered to resign and the next day I think Jonathan Stevens the permanent secretary got across and Hunt then suddenly told him everyone around here thinks you have to go. But when he pushed, came to shove. Hunt eventually sort of said that that Smith was drawn into inappropriate language in some of the text messages. So I think he's like the first person to have resigned from a sort of, you know, from a sort of uh, government job because of sending a few stray text messages. Uh, and the trouble with, and then the trouble with that is, is it all doesn't quite add up because then you get in a situation where Jeremy Hunt's saying, "Well, my my trusted loyal." Brilliant special advisor had to resign because of a few stray things he did. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't quite address the much more fundamental point, which is why did he resign? Because it looked bad. And if it looked bad for Adam Smith to do it, it probably looked bad for Jeremy Hunt to do it.
3: And George Osborne's being dragged closer into it too, although he's not actually due to give evidence uh, later to Leveson. No, not he's, currently, he's, at least.
0: He, he has been um, asked to submit written evidence, but I think we can fully expect that he'll be on maybe the week after next when we believe. Um, one David Cameron will be on
3: because there's a break next week, isn't there? And then it's back the following week.
1: Yeah, I yep. think I think we're expecting that. Nick Clegg, Gordon Brown. These are obvious people, I think, to it's come. It's the
0: big week, apparently, the tenth.
1: Yeah. Um, and where does this leave
3: Hunt, Dan? I mean, surely he can't hold on, he can't hold on to the media brief long term. But at the same time, perhaps you wouldn't expect the minister in charge of the Olympics to go before the Olympics.
1: I think that's absolutely right. David Cameron clearly doesn't want to lose him near term. He's got enough sort of other political difficulties. You made the point about the Olympics. There was going to be a reshuffle a couple of weeks ago, Tory sources are saying, but that that didn't happen. One of the things that they couldn't obviously have resolved at that point was what to do with Jeremy Hunt. Uh, There's obviously some personal loyalty there too. I I think there's sort of... You know, Jeremy Hunt himself, I think, when he turned up to the inquiry, he looked tired, he was subdued, um, at times sort of, you know, conceding, you know, on an emotional level a bit to be conceding, a, a, you know, a, a fair few mistakes. He, he looked like a beaten man um, in the first couple of hours. He did improve later on in the day, I think, as he realised that, you know, um, that uh, Robert Jay had only so much to throw at him.
3: Yeah, it was very much a performance of two halves. And it almost lost a bit of momentum when there was a a lot of legal chat at the start of the second half about um, redactions and stuff. And almost the wind, perhaps more my perception, but perhaps the wind went out the sails a bit and uh, it began to
1: drift a bit. I think that's right, but I don't think we should be fooled. And I think, I don't see Jeremy Hunt staying uh, in this brief, at the very least, um, uh, much beyond the Olympics. Uh, I think the question is whether he stays in the cabinet or not. You know, and I think you've just got to sort of, you know, what have we learned about Jeremy Hunt? We've learned an awful lot about what he thinks behind the scenes. He seems to be sort of Neutral about the BBC, certainly no fan of the Guardian. Not that that matters very much. Uh, 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 he sees—I hadn't really realised—maybe I was naive how, how politically he seems to see the media industry, very much sort of in a kind of party political prism. You know, at one point he talks about a, you know anti-News Corp. Sky argument, a Guardian Mark Thompson Channel Four argument. is a funny way of talking about it. Uh, so I can't quite see him in that role. And you've also got to remember that the you know the Telegraph in particular has been really going after Jeremy Hunt and to a lesser extent than. Male, so he doesn't even have the sort of you know, so many sort of people he's supposed to be stakeholders don't you know, don't like him, and I think that means he's he's got to get a different job at the very least.
3: Well, in other developments this week, Andy Colson, the former News of the World editor and of course, uh, number 10 director of communications, with, was charged with perjury. Dan, it's uh, difficult for obvious reasons to go into detail here, but what does this mean for the government and the prime minister?
1: Uh, well it's just another unhelpful reminder isn't it for you know uh for the prime minister you know andy carlson spent the first you know a few months of the uh of of cameron's term in number 10 at the sort of heart of decision making uh now he's been arrested and charged over perjury we'll see obviously see what happens in scotland but uh you know it's it's clearly not the kind of headline not the kind of um not the kind of headline that number 10 would want to see
3: well, away from Leveson. It was all change at Trinity, Trinity Mirror, where Daily Mirror editor Richard Wallace and Sunday Mirror editor Tina Weaver were made redundant as part of a move to a seven day operation. Um, various portrayals of what's happened here, Dan. Uh, some suggesting it was a, a last sort of gesture of revenge by outgoing chief executive Sly Bailey. There were suggestions that uh, Wallace and Weaver were, were planning a, a buyout. Uh, what, what do you make of it all?
1: What a mess this company is in! This it's so so sad what's happening at Trinity Mirror, and it's just I don't know if they're anywhere you know much nearer a way out of it. I look <laughs> what is true? The first thing that's true is what's really happened, which is cyber of sort of cost cutting from here to eternity, protecting the profit margins at uh, you know at the Mirror and the national titles above everything else, had run out of momentum. I mean, it's sort of had ten glorious years, but. She'd probably, in truth, run out of ideas for the last five, and and the paper was feeling the pain, and you can see that from the utter failure to capitalise on the in the absence of Murdoch from the Sunday Market for for all those months, and they ended up sort of once the Sun on Sunday reappeared, their their, their sales went back to where they were. They'd sort of gained nothing and sort of taken no advantage from it. So in that sense, very depressing. But but anyone who knew behind the scenes knew that relationships between Sly, um, who's obviously on her way out as chief executive, uh, and Richard and Tina were very strained because there were huge battles over uh, over cost cutting because another round of costs, you know, another round of cutting was demanded this year. The editors were dismal about that. Uh, There's clearly been a battle about seven day working. A battle that's there's now been won. Uh, in favour of seven-day working, but again, that's what I think, one of the reasons why I think Richard and Tina were fired, because they, they've, they've clearly got to the point where all the relationships have broken down, they've broken down between the management and the editors, and, and, and that's clear, that, you know, that can't work, uh, uh, but, you know, okay, they've they've appointed, you know, Lloyd Embley as, you know, from the people, they need some editor there to be editor-in-chief, and, uh, and I think Lloyd's a sort of, straight up and down guy but it doesn't suggest at this point it's not suggestive of a different kind of approach and what would a different approach look like i think a different approach would be talking about how can we rebalance investment away from the regionals and to the nationals and how can we maybe let the frankly you know be prepared to let the profit margin drop a bit on the on the national titles and then you know and you know and sort of put a bit more energy and money behind them rather than just sort of cost cut and cost cut
3: Lisa, what do you think it means for the, well, for the papers and its journalists and those two titles?
0: Um, the uh, Sly Bailey thing, Sly Bailey was one of the very first um, people to give evidence at the seminars at um, Levison back in October. And I, you remember she was she, she was all over the, the historic data um, in relation to um, the group um, and had explained very well how there was a structural um, and um, a cyclical change in the market. The cyclical thing was we we're in a recession, so advertising... Um, obviously it's depressed because of that, but the structural thing is the internet, all the re- recruitment that they would have got from, um, you know, as she said, taxi drivers, um, hairdressers, um, uh, jobs, that's all gone. A, a lot of it has gone to the internet and it won't come back. So the the issue for Trinity Mirror is, has constantly been a bit, you know, like some other groups, um, is where's your digital strategy? You know, I think, I think you've got to wonder how long, how long the mirror, the mirror is going to survive. Um, without a strategy um, so you know they, they
1: certainly haven't, haven't had the success of the mail you know uh, of the mail online I mean obviously the mail is a sort of standout winner but you know all these people are just sort of they face these sort of legacy print businesses now I think I think the mirror's got a long life in it left it's got there's still 65 odd million of profit in the nationals or something like this so I think it's still a decent number and and uh, you know perhaps we can talk at the Guardian as we make our own losses but <sighs> You, you, you're also right to say I think they don't get enough traffic online. There's not enough. I mean, Sly used to buy various sort of online jobs businesses and property businesses. And I, I can't get the impression any of them really sort of, you, you know, deli- you know, delivered. They're no, um, uh, you know, they're no right move or even dare one say it, they're no auto trader.
3: Well, Dan and Lisa, thanks very much. All things Leveson, Jeremy Hunt and indeed Trinity Mirror related at MediaGuardian.co.uk.
5: And the BAFTA goes to...
2: Stuart Lee's Comedy Lee book. Stuart Lee, we, uh,
5: We're very surprised to win this, so uh,
2: thanks a lot. Uh, we'd happily have won- uh, lost to anyone else on the list. The uh, so commissioning process just telling whatever think, are really um, random, and there's all sorts of good and bad reasons why people don't go with things. So you have to treat it like the weather. Like, no-one in their right mind would think that weather was against them or for them. And in the same <laughs> way, you can't think that the television industry has a moral compass, it's just a kind of thing that exists, so you get on with it. The
6: is awarded to Dominic West.
2: Even my sister was rooting for Benedict. It's an honour to be on the same list as those four guys. An honour also to, to work uh, with a, a crew. and.
4: I suppose really for, for what I got it for, it means that uh, we didn't mess up. Uh, in the subject, subject, subject matter that we in, in, that we chose and uh, that people um, saw the value in, in making a film on that subject.
5: It's Jennifer Saunders for Absolutely Fabulous.
0: Um, well, thank you for still finding it funny. Um, female, good. Um, <laughs> I really wasn't expecting this. Um, so I'll make it short and quick. Thank you everyone who works on the show for- I think we'd left it long enough that we could. We had enough jokes up our sleeves, and um, enough has happened in the world that it, it sort of felt nice to come back.
3: That was this week's BAFTA TV Awards, as if you didn't know. And I'm joined now by the Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Hello, Vicky. We were both there, of course, uh, in the press room. I assume. Well, you got to go to the dinner, whereas I got to go home.
6: Oh, I am sorry, although the dinner was enormously hot. I mean, the whole thing was a bit like everybody just melting everywhere. But I did get to go to the dinner, and I did get to meet Sidsi uh, Babette, I forget her other name, from Borgen, the lady from Borgen, who I can report is the most beautiful woman I have ever met, and also totally charming, and as we know, has an English accent that is better than either of ours, in fact.
3: Well, certainly better than my estuary English, uh, <laughs> South East London uh, take on. Anyway, the BAFTA-winning Borgen, of course, which beat the killing.
6: Yes, it did. I I thought that was right, actually. A good choice by the International uh, BBC Four Award, as I call it in my head, because basically I could never imagine BBC Four not winning it at the moment.
5: Well,
3: there's another good night, of course, for ITV's Fred West drama, Appropriate Adult, which picked up three awards. Um, beating well, beating Sherlock among other things—is that right?
6: Yes, it did. It took the three big. It took three big acting awards, and Sherlock took the other one. So it took best actor, best actress, best supporting actress, and then uh, Sherlock uh, took uh, best supporting actor. Um, I think it was right. Actually, I'd also like to say I did quite predict it, but um, I do think it's right. Uh, I think appropriate adult for me was all about the performances. They were absolutely. All of them were really brilliant. And I was really pleased to see Monica Dolan in particular pick up that Best Supporting Actress uh, gong because I thought as Rose West, one, she was completely uh, unrecognisable as uh, as Rose West. And two, she just gave such a brilliant performance in that role. So, uh, yeah, I think pretty well deserved. I mean, I think it was a bit of an odd sort of thing in terms of, you know, Sherlock wasn't nominated in any of the drama categories. Um, neither was Call the Midwife, neither was Downton so you had sort of basically the three most popular dramas uh, of the year not getting nominated in any of those drama series kind kind of categories which I think did leave a slightly weird imbalance sort of when you look down the list they're sort of fair but I wonder whether a lot of television viewers would go
3: yeah, it felt like some of the kind of mainstream heavyweight stuff wasn't mm. really represented. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so. Well, talking of shocks, I have my little list of uh, BAFTA surprises to see if you agree with them or not. Um, now, uh, D- Darren Boyd, who won, uh, he won uh, the a uh, sexily titled Male Performance in a Comedy Program Prize.
6: <laughs> Snappy. And, well, yeah, he'll be glad
3: of that. Uh, he beat Hugh Bonneville, uh, Revs Tom Hollander, and um, Mrs Brown's Boys, and uh, he won for Spy, which is a Sky One comedy. So that was. Uh, Maybe a turn up for the books.
6: It was a turn up for the books, but I think it is very, very, very well deserved. He's been in lots of things. What's recently. he been in? Because I recognise him but uh, couldn't tell you. He was in Dirk Gently. He um, was playing Dirk Sidekick, whose name escapes me for a moment. And he was excellent, excellent in that, which sadly isn't coming back to BBC4. We heard. Uh, this week I think due to budget cuts which I do think is a shame because I thought it was a nice thing so he was great in that and he quite often plays that supporting role he was in White which again got axed which is this isn't good is it but he's great in all of these things and I was really pleased to see him win because I just think he's done lots of supporting and it was great to see him recognised in that
3: Well it's not a bad thing if a BBC BBC show is axed certainly in terms of its BAFTA uh, chances (laughs) uh, because the Fades... Uh, the supernatural drama acts from BBC3 won the drama series being the Misfits Misfits uh, and surely the two hot favourites Scott and Bailey and Spooks so another surprise there
6: yes and it was a surprise actually um, I sort of thought it would be kind of a nice thing if it won but I, di- I didn't expect it to win it was a good decision and I just, I've always thought the BBC were a bit mad about this. I never understood why they had axed it anyway. I mean, I presume it's a budget thing. I think it's quite expensive to make, it has quite a lot of special effects. But it's written by Jack Thorne, who's a really great young voice. And it's just a really good thing. And you look at some of the stuff, you know, they've kept, you know, like that terrible Caribbean murder in paradise, whatever that is, that's just. Awful, awful thing on BBC One, which is you know had got this second run, and yet they get rid of the really interesting thing from BBC Three, which uh, BBC Three had quite a good you know BBC Three was nominated for that, but it was also nominated for Our War, and I thought uh, that there was it was good to see some recognition of the fact that BBC Three has done good work actually recently. Uh, in those BAFTA wins.
3: And the last one we're going to mention was the sitcom prize, which was won by Mrs. Brown's Boys, Ugh. Uh, which is, is truly, I was going to say, it's the the My Family for the 21st century in the sense that it's uh, rather popular with the viewers, but never going to get a lot of critical acclaim. But um, probably My Family was around in the 21st century too. But anyway, Mrs. <laughs> Brown's Boys, it beat... Uh, uh, you might think more kind of uh, well, it'd be Rev Friday Night Dinner and Fresh Meat, which are all seemed more likely contenders, or
6: well, they, they seem like more likely critical contenders, didn't they? Indeed, um, you know Rev in particular, the critics adore. I mean, Rev just won everything at the Broadcasting Press Guild Awards, but. Um, I do think it was a terrible shame, actually, to see, you know, neither uh, Tom Hollander, Olivia Coleman or Rev pick up award. I know Olivia Coleman was nominated for 2012. But even so, you know, for me, they have been the standout uh, comedy of the last year, even, well, apart from Roger and Val. But as we know, I am Roger and Val's only and greatest viewer, you know. The next but... series will be Roger, Val and Vicky. <laughs> yeah, you like much. it so much. Yes, exactly. Um Yes, I think it was an interesting choice Mrs. Brown's boys. I cannot bear it. I think it's broad. I think it's it's just everything I don't like in comedy. But I do, I mean I but at the same time I can see that lots of people do like it. Does that mean it's due an award? To me, no, not necessarily. And I think there were other better things on that list. Um but I suppose it's BAFTA giving a nod to popular as well as critically acclaimed.
3: And what did you make of the show? I mean, we were both stuck in, well, I was certainly stuck in the press office, but I came in for a bit of stick uh, about the quality of the script.
6: It was appalling, wasn't it? It was very amateur, I thought. I mean, we were in the press room, which was, um, uh, well, it was like a fridge. It was like the coldest place in London. It was lovely. Um, and everyone else was melting terribly. Um, but it was just a bit like, you know, like Dominic West forgot his specs so couldn't read any of it. Some of the exchanges were just really excruciatingly terrible. And I, you did kind of think, well, actually, can't you just come on and present the prize? Why do you need to do this trying to be funny bit, which is always appalling?
3: Well, I think it really missed Graham Norton as well.
6: Yeah, I think, you know, much as I like Dora O'Brien, I sort of think he's he's not the same sort of level, I think, is he?
3: And Graham, uh, well, Graham close personal friend he, he didn't do it because he was in uh, he was doing the Eurovision song yeah, contest but yeah. surely surely you ditch Eurovision and do the BAFTAs You got it the wrong way around
6: well also I mean there were people uh, there who had covered Eurovision who had managed to get back in time so I don't slightly don't understand uh, how that you know why that would have prevented him you know Uh also, I, I don't love Graham Norton on Eurovision. I think he's, mm, I think he holds back. I think he feels perhaps that he can't say everything he wants to say, and and I think you can you can feel that as a viewer. So I would rather have him at BAFTAs than Eurovision. I think.
3: And Eurovision was a bit of a disaster. I mean, it didn't rate. Uh, we said last week that last year's got about thirteen million. Peak mm. this year was more like uh, what well, was less than 10 million, mm. uh, which kind of uh, pretty much reflected poor old uh, Engelbert's uh, performance, didn't it?
6: Yes, I think so. I mean, I think Engelbert, remember the year before we had blue and there was quite a lot of people being excited about blue. Um, I mean, I'm sure the weather had something to do with it, you know, it was. Gorgeous, wasn't it, on Saturday? And I remember being a bit furious that I then had to spend my evening watching Eurovision rather than being out having a lovely time.
3: You need to get the extension lead out into the garden.
6: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, exactly. So I imagine that played a part in it. But also, you know, he was on first, he was rubbish.
3: As as Mr Simpson predicted last week.
6: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yes, I'm sure that did have an impact. I
3: think I need to get Simon Cowell to uh, take him up on his offer and get Simon Cowell to pick the... Uh... Pick the entry, but...
6: Uh, Maybe we should just send Simon Cowell. I mean, it Simon would be amusing. Gow- <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh,
3: well, uh, and this is a BAFTA-winning link coming up. Um, Sky One Spy, won the comedy prize this year. Mm-hmm. Perhaps next year, Alan Partridge will win a BAFTA for Sky.
4: When I'm walking in the countryside, I normally like to use a stick. But uh, rather than buy one of those aluminium ones made in China by kids, I prefer a British one made in Britain. By trees. Very simple, really. If you want a walking stick, you just simply find somewhere like this. Simply snap away the excess branches. Very simple. And then that was that was a bit too big. which me look like Moses. i don't want that because I'm not Moses. So simply getting inside of me. I just very simply jump against it like that. Uh,
6: was it fine, falling over is fine. So oh, Sky had this big comedy launch this week and. Uh, sort of shows what they've got which includes Partridge Uh, they have a special mid-morning Matters uh, coming up Um, they also have what I think looks great which is like a a thing about Norwich basically and it's him sort of doing kind of like a traveloggy history kind of programme which I really enjoyed the clip from I thought it sounded very funny so they have that coming but then they also have uh, other things as well now they have got a new um, commissioned a new comedy from Julia Davis who I adore and um, her most recent pilot was Lizzie and Sarah for the BBC, which went out scandalously late on a Saturday night with absolutely no press attached to it whatsoever and then wasn't commissioned despite being absolutely bloody brilliant so that's a bit annoying and now Sky picked her up, picked her up, and they have given her um, this new comedy a programme called Hunderby, which is a 19th century, basically, period drama comedy. It looks absolutely bonkers. I am very excited about it. I think it looks really interesting. Um, so there's that. Veep is coming, of course. That's the um, uh, Armando which is Inucci. The, yeah, Armando Inucci, um kind of... Um, well, what they're saying is not the US thick of it, but... It is the US, it is is the US yeah, thick yeah. of it. a bit. Um, and a lovely, lovely thing from uh, Kathy Burke, who I don't know if you saw, she did a Sky One Christmas Cracker um, about her as a child and uh, as a teenager. And um, it was a really lovely thing and her obsession with music. And now that's been turned into uh, Walking and Talking, which is uh, several parts, uh, lovely comedy written by her... Um, And it's just a a lovely thing. I think it's got real sort of warmth about it, a really lovely touch. So that looks really good as well.
3: OK, Vicky Frost, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. You can leave feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on our blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett, and Media Talk was produced by Peter Sale. Thanks for
1: listening.
6: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.
1: Guardian podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.